At the end of World War I, the story is General Pershing sent word to the troops in Europe announcing a victory parade, a victory parade that was going to take place in the streets of Paris. And he said there are two requirements for soldiers to be able to take part in the parade. One requirement was to have a good record. The other requirement is that a soldier had to be at least 186 centimeters tall. Well, word came to one of the the companies of American soldiers and the excitement built of how cool that would be to to be in a victory to parade and, and especially to be able to do that in Paris. But being Americans, none of them were exactly sure how tall 186 centimeters was. And so immediately the soldiers began to, to, to line up with one another. They were, they were, you know, like kids on photo day at school where you got to get in the line from tallest. They're, they're, they're back to back to one another and, and, and seeing who's taller. And the taller ones are teasing the shorter ones a little bit. And the story is, though, then the officer arrived who put the mark on the wall at 186 centimeters. Some of those soldiers simply looked at the mark and walked away because they knew they were too short. There were others who actually walked up to the mark hoping that it looked a little taller, right, at a distance than it did up close, but realizing that they were not tall enough either until finally the tallest man in the troop stood up to the mark, squared his shoulders, and he was a quarter inch too tall short. The point is they, 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 they compared themselves to one another, right? Thinking that, that somehow that would make it possible that, that, it, that at least some of them would be able to qualify. But when the real standard came, it proved that none of them qualified. I want to talk to you about the fact today that I think that's the way a lot of people tend to think about how we get into heaven. They do. And if if the qualifying factor is being good, but we're not quite sure like where good is good enough. And so what we tend to do is we suddenly start comparing to one another. We, we go back to back with, because with, with, I mean, come on, I, it's like, like I, I, I don't, look, I don't get drunk like my neighbor does. I mean, it's especially not on Sunday, I don't, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't do it like, like, like he does. And I, I don't, I don't gamble like this particular family member does who I know they're in financial trouble. I mean, I, Okay, I get a I get a lottery ticket every once in a while, but I, I like I, I don't I don't do it like 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 he does, and and I treat my spouse good. All right, I mean, I, I, okay, we we yell sometimes, but I I don't treat her like I see some others being treated. The point is, we compare ourselves with others, at least hoping that if we're in the top half of good, we're going to get in. 
So, how good does a person have to be to get into heaven? In what I would call the greatest talk that was ever given, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said it this way, you got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh Uh-oh. You got to be perfect, he said, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus then kind of, he went after the hearts of the religious leaders of that day who were convinced that when they compared themselves to other people, they, they certainly were going to get in, right? They would never, ever consider breaking God's law of murdering someone. And what did Jesus say? But when you are angry with your brother and there is no forgiveness, he said, you have broken the law and you don't get in. Those guys would have never considered, right, committing adultery. They, they pridefully would have said, we are not a part of that kind of thing. But Jesus said, if you lust in your heart after a woman, then you have broken the commandments. You're not in. Jesus was clear that the way in is not just an outward behavior That's better than most people. Jesus said the only way in was a perfection, the righteousness of God, even in the way that we think. I heard somebody describe it this this way one time. They're like, the Ten Commandments is like a a ten-link chain that attaches a boat to a dock. All it takes is one broken link and that boat suddenly is drifting away and then it is crushed by the waterfall downstream. See, we like to compare links. It's like how many links are broken in your chain and how many links are broken in my chain and if less links are broken in my chain, then I want to say I think I'm getting in. But the point is every chain is broken. So the question is, how does any of us have hope? And what I have come to declare to you today is that the answer to the problem is surprising. It's actually surprising worth. And that is where we are in a little talk series in the book of Philippians chapter 3. So today, welcome I am so grateful that you are here for what I I would consider a most important talk. I'm excited about sharing it with you today. Welcome to those of you who are at Garden City. Welcome to those of you who are joining us uh, by video in in Adrian, in Harrisonville. Uh, Those of you who may be joining us from home or some who are on the road. I met an unusual number of people this week who said, hey, we tune in online. And some of them said, hey, we we live in such and such a place and we've got a church that's near us and and we tend to go to that church, but we also also tune in and watch with you guys and join in with you online. And when they said it, it was almost like they were kind of being apologetic, like, are you okay if you're the backup plan? And, 
You know what? My, my, I immediately said that's exactly how we want it to be. We want people connected in local churches, wherever they may be, but if we can be a part of together building one another up, then that is the picture that God gives us. I also got a text this morning of somebody who said, we are watching online from Kauai, as in Hawaii, Kauai. I did my best to say blessings. And maybe we have to talk about coveting today. I don't know. Maybe time for a talk on that. But my immediate thought was next time, like, I think I should go and let's turn it around one week. And instead of broadcasting here to there, let's like video there back here. Wouldn't that be a great idea? I think it would. I think it would. I'm glad that you're here. In this whole issue, of how good do you have to be? In this whole issue of, of what does it mean to actually be right with God and to be able to right call heaven your home forever, there is a word that I'm going to use today that I believe is key. It is the word confidence. It's the word confidence. And our culture is all about self-confidence, right? It's all about a a confidence in yourself, a belief in yourself that that you are good enough. I want you to know that when I use the word confidence, that is not the context I'm talking about. It is not a self-confidence. It is actually a confidence in someone else we're learning And it's what the apostle Paul has been telling us. He's saying, look, if this were about me being good enough, he said, look, I'd put my resume up against any of y'all. That's what he says. I'll put put my resume out there. But what he said is, like the tallest soldier in the company, I still fall short. He would say, maybe the links in this chain for me, there there are less links that are broken than in yours. He said, "But, but... I still fall short, but Paul has found the answer. And here's what we're learning in this little text. Philippians chapter 3, today I'm just covering two verses, verse 8 and verse 9. Here's what he says. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, the context of what we learned is Paul saying, look, I I thought at one point, this is what made me good. This is what made me good. This is what earned my way. But he said, now I have seen something that surpasses everything. I have met Jesus. His surpassing worth means that everything else is lost. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. We'll come back and talk about some of this. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, watch this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. When Paul used to think about what was valuable in his life, he thought about his heritage, he thought about his education. He thought about his passion, right? 
He thought about his morality, how good he was. But now he says, all that is lost. All that is lost because I have met Jesus, he says. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the greatest treasure. And that leads me to recognize that that everything else is as lost so that I gain him. And how does that happen? He uses this little word, faith. He uses it twice here. He says it's faith. So my question is, when you look at this text, it's like, okay, how is it that you can be right with God? Is it, is it this surpassing worth of knowing Jesus where you consider everything else loss, or, or is it faith? And I think the answer is yes, because I think Paul's saying they are the same thing here. Faith is the experience of Christ as our surpassing worth. Faith is knowing Jesus as our surpassing treasure. I'm going to show you one more place where I think Paul says the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look look what he says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Whether you know it or not, there is an enemy who wants to keep everybody in the dark about how great Jesus is. That's his play. Keep everybody in the dark about how great Jesus is. But God is doing something different. And in verse 6, we get what God's doing. God said, let light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He says, look, God steps into this darkness, into this blindness that the enemy wants to make happen, and God turns the light on. God flips the switch, the light comes on, and all of a sudden, when you look at Jesus, you know you are looking at the God who loves you more than anybody has ever loved you. He says, it's God who turns that light on. And then watch how Paul, watch what he says here. But we have this, check it out, treasure. Just like he talks about in Philippians, the surpassing worth, the surpassing treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and is not from us is from God and not from us. What is the treasure? That's my question. What what is this treasure in jars of clay? And, And the context here is it's the sight that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. The treasure is the sight that that he is worth, right, more than anything else. When you are given the experience of seeing the light of the glory of Jesus as surpassing worth, Everything else becomes loss. And now you are experiencing faith. You are in Christ Jesus. That's how you get in. That's how you get in. It's not about comparing to anybody else. It's about looking at Jesus and seeing the God of perfection. 
but that God of perfection who was willing to take on your imperfection and my imperfection is called sin. It's called rebellion against God. And that God, Jesus, he died for you and me, rose from the dead, and a faith, a faith in him, seeing his greatness, declaring him treasure above all, he gives me his righteousness. Like, Jeff, can you explain that to me? Nope. Nope. But in a miracle, he takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness. And suddenly when God looks at me, I'm tall enough. I meet the requirement that Jesus said, perfection. You're like, Jeff, you're not perfect. I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have made mistakes. But the miracle that has happened in me is that Jesus has given me his righteousness that when God sees me now, he sees the righteousness of his son, not my sin. I'm in. But I'm not boasting because somehow I earned that. I am boasting in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who did everything to make that possible for me. He also made it possible for you. Let's take that and let me show you a few more just what I'm going to call key words in this text before we move past it too fast in these next weeks. Let's read it again. Verse verse 8, it doesn't take long to see this first one. What is more, Paul says, I consider everything a loss, right? Why are we highlighting that word? Here's why we're highlighting that word. Back in the prior verses, all right, and you can do the homework for yourself this week. You can go back and look it up. The language that Paul used was, I had considered it lost. In other words, he's, he's speaking in the past. It's what's called a perfect tense. It's, it's past. He says, there was a day in my life back there when I saw the value of who Jesus was. Suddenly I realized how all this other stuff that I thought was going to make me right with God, that's really just loss. He said, I had considered loss. When we get to verse 8, he's not talking in past tense anymore. It's in the present tense. You say, well, what difference does that make? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. I have counted everything loss. Now I'm continually counting everything loss compared to who Jesus is. It's an ongoing thing. My question is, does that describe your life? Because that is what actual faith in Jesus looks like. See, I'm afraid that I come in contact too often with too many church people who tend to have some experience with God. They declare that they put their trust in God, they they declare that they give their life to him, maybe they're even baptized, like the the little video that we're celebrating a few minutes ago, but then it's as though they go right back to a life of pursuing a value of so many other things. Occasionally, they will glance Jesus' way, usually glancing Jesus' way when we need something, I'm going to say something that's 
pretty pointed. But I'm not saying it to be harsh. I am saying it in prayer that God would open our eyes to truth. Where there is indifference to Jesus reveals that you do not know him. Where there is indifference to Jesus, it reveals that you do not know him. Because the picture that Paul has given us here is he's saying, look, I who have met the greatest treasure, he said, look, I'm still pursuing the greatest treasure. And we're like, well, Paul, don't you have him? He goes, yes, I do. I, I know I, I have the greatest treasure, but, but my life continues to pursue the greatest treasure above all else. I will continue to resist the, the recurring temptation to rely on myself versus trusting in his grace for where I stand with God. See, this, this changes Sometimes even for people who are in church and doing ministry, sometimes if you're not careful, you'll suddenly realize whatever the task is that you're trying to, to get done in ministry, you, you, will, you will suddenly realize, wait a minute, it's as though I'm trying to complete this task because I think that somehow completing this task actually raises me a little bit on the height scale so that somehow completing this task will, will make sure that God loves me. No. No. When you know Jesus, you are fully loved by him. And you don't do what you do to be counted worthy. You do what you do because he's already counted you worthy. And that's what we come together every week to celebrate. No other religion in the world declares that. None. Every other religion says, jump through the hoop, take the next step, prove it. Only Christianity is this message of only God can do it. Let me show you a little more. Let me show you a little more. Interesting word tucked away in here. What's more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. Garbage. Like, I don't know if we expected that word to be there. In some of the older translations, different translations, it's not the word garbage. It's the word dung, all right? It's the word dung. And the word here actually means excrement, all right? Um, there are other words that we could use to describe this that I don't feel like is my responsibility to teach to your kids. They're going to find them out soon enough, but that's exactly what this means, it's exactly what this means. So I want us to get a picture of this, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little role like Paul played with us over these last weeks when he thought about those things in his life that he would stack up as, hey, here's the proof that I'm good enough, all right? 
For example, Paul would have said, hey, my heritage, remember he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and, and talked about all those steps that he took, tribe of Benjamin, right? He's, a, he's of the right heritage. I, if, if it were up to me to prove like, hey, I, I, here's, here's why I deserve to get in, I would, I, I would show some things like um, this is an ordination certificate um, that, that is recognizing the fact that, that my dad was called to, to gospel ministry. He's a, he's a minister, he's a pastor, right? He's still, he's still doing those things. And I would say, hey, this, this is where I come from. This is, this is the line for, from which I am attached. And actually, I could go back further than that because this is the certificate of ordination from my grandfather being recognized as, as a pastor. And, and, and so, look, if I had to stack the deck and I'm trying to build the resume, I'm going, hey, I, I'm coming from a line of some guys who have been connected with God and, and they, they have lived the life. This is, where I, this is where I come from. And then, like Paul, if I had to um, recognize, hey, I, I, some education, right? This is, this is my certificate of a, of a doctorate, all right, that, that, that I would say, hey, I, I worked hard to, to earn. And in order to get to this, that there had to be a, a, a master of divinity that I went after. And in order to have that, there, there had to be a, a bachelor of, of management that, that I had to get. And in order to get that, there had to be a, a high school diploma that I had to get. And so, look, if, if I got to be good enough to get in, I'm, I'm going to stack every piece of blood, sweat, and tears that I've ever poured into any kind of, uh, of accomplishment. And I'm going to, and then um, Paul goes after passion. And so, um, I, I would start showing you things like this. This is a little plaque that represents um, some that, that we have received throughout the years. This, this recognizes uh, the church as a pace setter church. It's saying, hey, Heart of Life is a pace setter church in, in the state of Missouri and a, and a pace setter church in the nation in terms of people who have been baptized here and, and, and the, the works of mission to which we've been done. And so I, I would start pulling out the awards and going, look, we are, we are passionate about this. We, there is a zeal within us that, that we want to, to uh, accomplish those things. I, I, I could pull out some certificates from places overseas where God's right, allowed us to do ministry and churches have been started, and, 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 and then I would say, okay, and so for me, I, I, also, I also am a pastor. I also am a pastor, and so there at least has to be some sort of, um, at least an expectation that, look, if half of us get in, then I should at least be operating from a level that's, that's half as good, Right? It's a garbage can. It's a garbage can. Because the Apostle Paul said, all that's garbage. I want to make sure we understand Paul did not say, these things are good and Jesus is better. He said, these are garbage. And maybe you want to push back a little bit and go, or, I mean, that seems a bit harsh. I mean, like some of those things seem really good to me. I mean, is, is it like garbage that your dad is a pastor? Is it like garbage that your grandfather was a pastor? I mean, is it really garbage for us to, to get an education and, and those kinds of things? And so you're right on track. The question is what makes these garbage? What, what makes Paul declare these garbage? And the answer is 
anything that becomes fuel for self-confidence, that these things make me good enough, Paul says, that's garbage. So you understand, he's, he's not saying that my dad being a pastor is garbage. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Jeff, you using that to think you're good enough, that's garbage. That's garbage. There is no room for a self-confidence in my right standing with God. That's not faith. But when I do leverage all confidence in Jesus alone, let me show you one more thing. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ, and then watch this, and be found in him. Be found in him. And the question I want to ask is, why didn't Paul just say, um, and in him? Like, why did he put be found? You know what I'm saying? He could have like, he could have narrowed that down a little bit, right? I, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, gain Christ and in him not having a righteousness of my own. Why, why did he just say in, in him? Why did he put and be found in him? And I do think there's something significant here. It's not the first time we've heard these words. We actually heard them the first time in chapter 3. I just didn't make a big deal out of it yet. Or chapter 2. Back in Philippians chapter 2, Paul was talking to us about humility, remember? And and he's saying, Jesus, the ultimate picture of humility. Here is a part of what he said in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 2. He that's God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See it? Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance. Same words. Same words. Being found. What's he saying? He's saying, you ready for this? God, all right, creator, sustainer, God of the universe, put on skin. In Bethlehem, he's born. And suddenly, he was found in this human form. In other words, Anybody see that one coming? Like, did anybody expect that to be how the story goes? Did anybody think that the God of all creation, who speaks everything into existence, all power, all honor, all glory, did anybody think we were going to find him in skin? In other words, it was a surprise. It's shocking in a sense. 
And so in chapter 3, when Paul says, and be found in him, you know what that means? That means, hey, when you look at Jeff's life, did anybody expect to find him in the family of God? When you look at his mistakes, when you look at his sin, when you see the broken links in the chain, when you see him not tall enough in his good works, right? Did anybody expect that he would be counted as the family of God? Surprise! I'm in. Surprise! but not because of my righteousness. The surprise is I'm in because of his righteousness, only by a faith in him, his shining, the light of the truth of his greatness. This is a surprising worth. Jesus has turned my gains into losses because he has revealed the truth of who he is in order that I might gain him. What does it take to gain him? It is renouncing everything else that competes with him as the grounds for your confidence in him. Now, I go on counting everything a loss. That is, anything that attempts to replace Jesus because of the value that I now know he holds. All right, we get to this point every week, and it's like, well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Like, what's our our response to this? And here's the way I'm going to do it this week. Did you do anything with the two questions that I gave you last week? Did he give us two questions last week? I did give you two questions last week. And I believe those two questions are so important that I'm dragging them back up today and I'm asking you, did you do anything with those two questions that I gave you? Here are the two questions. What stirs your affection for Jesus and what robs your affection for Jesus? If this is about knowing Jesus and loving him, then what does this look like? Like Paul's saying, I continue. I continue to count these things as lost because I see the treasure of who Jesus. What is it that stirs your affection for him, seeing the treasure of who he is and what robs you? Of that. Last week, I gave you some examples, right, uh, for my own self, my, the, the patio at my house, man, early in the morning when it's just me and him and, and we're, we're, we're talking and, and he stirs my affection. I, I gave you the weird thing of going to the cemetery for me, um, but the not so weird thing of going to the beach for me, right? I, I could add to that list, I mean, things like be, being able to, to go to dinner with, with friends, who also value Jesus as the highest treasure, right? And just that time spent together, I don't even mean the conversation the whole time is necessarily, right, uh, on Jesus, if you will, but the conversation is a picture of what honors him. And, and I tend to walk away that night, right, after you've, after you've spent that kind of time with, with people who love him, and, and I just find myself going, Jesus, I love you for giving me with And it stirs that affection for him. My question is, what's your list? 
Like, what's your list? Did, did you make a list? Some of you are nodding your head, yes, so I know that you did. Some of you are looking at me like, please don't ask me personally if I made a list because I didn't make a list. Make a list. Like, pay attention. What, what are those things? I don't, know how, I don't know how to convince you enough that intentionality, intentionality of recognizing those things that stir your affection for Jesus and do them. Like, what are you going to put on the calendar that's more valuable than that? What are you going to put on your daily planner that, that gives you the opportunity to see your affection stirred for him? And then what robs you? I told you last week, if I get too serious with sports, right, suddenly I'm acting weird and moody because some 20-something-year-olds failed me on a field, right? I find that anything can be like that for people. Anything that you... You, you, you give your heart to, right? Uh, for some people, it might be gaming, right? Is gaming sinful? No, not necessarily. But like if that consumes your attention and affection and, and you suddenly realize that, that you've just been oblivious to, right, Jesus and his work in your life. I mean, for some people, it can be whatever their hobby is. They just go overboard with whatever that hobby is, and it becomes this all-consuming thing. Um, sleep? Now, I'm, I'm for sleep. Jesus said rest. God said rest. But sometimes sleep can be the thing that just robs you of those opportunities. It can be whatever. It can be whatever. What are those things that absorb huge amounts of your affection instead of stirring your affection for Jesus. If I were given like one shot to speak to a crowd of people, this topic is one of the things I would consider being the one shot that I would take. Like if I just had a crowd of people that I knew I was only going to see one time, this would tend to be the topic because I know when you fall in love with Jesus, when your affection is stirred for him, when you learn how to stir that affection for him and you learn how to push away those things that rob you, Jesus tends to do all kinds of other stuff out of that, correcting things in your life, lining things. He tends to work so much other stuff that we tend to spend all our time actually right begging for and strategizing for. Man, if we, if we just knew what it is to love him like the treasure above all treasure. Yesterday, yesterday, um, part of my day was a wedding, which is kind of how my summer goes, to be honest with you. Summer for me means um, usually a season of weddings, all right? It is, and it, it'll be anywhere from, um, you know, six, eight. Uh, I think one, one time I remember doing nine straight weeks of weddings, all right? So, so last night was kind of the last wedding in the wedding season for me. Um, but it made me think about wedding days are interesting, aren't they? 
like wedding days, the, the, the day that, that a person, it, it, it really is interesting. Um, some wedding days are more intense than others, as I observe many, but they, they really are all-encompassing days for people, right? Because there's so much stuff that needs to get done on a wedding day. There's all the food that needs to be done. There's all the decorations and, and prep that has to be made right there. There are the photos that are forever and your face gets stuck in a smile. You're like, am I actually smiling? Because I can't, I can't, I don't know if I'm smiling anymore. It just all day long, right? There's a huge amount of stuff that goes on on a wedding day. And so I'm kind of letting you on the inside. It cracks me up sometimes about when I think about how wedding days are for, for people on that. And then I think about what I do on those days, all right? Because if a wedding's in the afternoon, I'll have several meetings in the morning, right? While they're all running around doing decorations and food and all that, just, and I'll have several meetings of this topic and that topic and this topic, or I might jump on the lawnmower and mow my grass, right, before, before I need to go to the wedding. And it, and it just kind of cracks me up. And yesterday I was thinking about this. It's like, what's the difference? What's the difference? It's not my wedding. It's not my wedding. Now, I'm glad to be a part of it. I truly am. I, I'm at that place where a lot of kids that I remember that used to be this tall, they're now much more than 186 centimeters tall and, and they're getting married and to get to be a part of that. And so when, when that happens, then I, I'm, I'm meeting with them and right, you're meeting a spouse and, and a future spouse and you're, you're talking through, hey, what do they want the wedding to look like? And then there's prep for me of what, is a, what does the talk need to be in terms of who, who they are and, and, and what they'd like to see and what's the order of all that. And so there's a lot of that that goes into it ahead of time. But like on the day of the wedding, I might be mowing grass. And it just kind of cracks me up when I think about how intense those who are actually at the wedding site all day long and all that they're putting into it. And it made me think, I wonder if that's kind of a description of how it is for those who truly know Jesus as their treasure and those who don't. Because those who do are consumed with Jesus. Those who know him really as their treasure, they are consumed with Jesus. So that everything about the day, like even today, is about him. When they go to work, it's not about just how to get through a day of work. It's about, I love this Jesus so very much who loves me so very much. How in the world can I get these people I work with to see the light of the glory of who he is? They're consumed with Jesus. In their family, it's not just about how do we get through this week and make sure that everybody gets fed and where they need to be. No, no, when, for them, it is about how do I get this group of people that I love and would lay down my life for, how do I get them to see the value of the treasure that Jesus is. You see what I'm saying? Even when they play, 
even when they play, and there's a place for playing and just, just enjoying. But even in that, there is this appreciation of heart. There is this gratitude that says Jesus is the one who actually gives us rest. He is the one who blesses us with, with ability to enjoy. When you know Jesus, it's sort of like the wedding day every single day of your life. You are consumed with him, and everything about life is about him. But those who are not consumed with him, right? Those who are satisfied with what they know of Jesus and every once in a while can show up at an event like today. It reveals a truth. Maybe it's not your wedding. You don't know him. I'm begging you today, I'm begging you today to hear the God of creation who calls to you. Maybe today you return to your first love. Or maybe today, for the first time, you say, I do. Jesus, I do. I do see you as treasure, and I do entrust my life to you. I do from this day forward declare that I want to know you. I want to be found in you. And if you've never done that today, I'd love to visit with you if you're in this place, if you're at one of our locations, there are campus leaders there who would be more than honored to just visit with you. I don't know anything greater because there is none greater. He is surprising worth. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love. And I thank you today for your truth. God, may you stir hearts today for those who need to know you for a very first time. May you stir hearts today for those whose hearts need to return to you. May we be consumed with you. In the name of Jesus, amen.